From Rixie, this is Frameform. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Wednesday of Frameform. Jen, Claire, welcome back. Good to be back. How Great to be back. Happy Wednesday, everyone. I'm excited for today's topic. Very. Oh, yeah. We have a great show for y'all. We're going to be talking about timeless movers. In this case, we're celebrating all ages of dance. Um, Specifically, we are focusing on an older group of dancers. These people have, I'm going to say this, they've been around the block. And as younger dance filmmakers and dance film watchers, we look up to them because they, too, inspire us as just artists in general and viewers of the public. But first of all, before we jump right in, Claire, Jen, have you been watching anything that has been, you know, making your heart sing? I'm, I'm in an inspire, inspiring mood for today, <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't even know whether to call it a movie or a TV show, and quite frankly, quite Many other people don't either, but I have been watching the films in Steve McQueen's Small Axe series on Amazon. One of those films, and tying this back into the podcast, I would actually put into the Screen Dance Dance Film canon. And Hmm. if you haven't seen Lover's Rock, do it immediately. (laughs) Linked in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes, but it is such a, like an immersive experience and one of those one of those films that really does put you into the the film with the movement of the camera and really I mean it's essentially like a house party like an entire the entire film is a house party but is it like enter the void like do I want it to stop the whole time oh no or is it enjoyable (laughs) it's enjoyable There's some, okay. Yeah. It's overall enjoyable, but um it was a really good sell until you said house party and then like my enter the void flag went up and I was like, "Wait a minute." Oh my gosh. <laughs> Just want to make sure I'm not going to go through that again. Yeah. Yeah, that was a rough movie. I too had to uh, stop yeah. that. But oh. it's the kind of movie you watch like as a as a person growing up and you're like, "Oh, I got to watch this so that I've I've seen it." Yeah. And some of those movies it's like I actually don't care to sit through it. There's so many classics yeah. I will never see because not worth the time. <laughs> Speaking of Gaspar Noe, have either of you, well, also on Amazon, have either of you seen Climax? No. No, I I know there was some excitement about it as a movement film and as perhaps crossing into our sphere of interest. Um, is that something that you're kind of hinting at here? It does. Um, it's not the movie I'd okay. watch if you want to have a good time. But um, <laughs> I mean, honestly, the the first scene, like you can watch that, and the, that you basically get the movie. But okay, but Lovers Rock is the kind of movie that you would watch to have a good time, and it really does, like again, like take you beyond like the you know what's happening, and really gets into like the sensory experience of a party like that. And I've been watching a lot of submissions coming in, uh, just getting ramped up for the 2021 season. And, you know, our predictions slash observations last year of COVID being a big boom uh, for production is absolutely true. I did lower submission fees this year, given, you know, the unique circumstances of showcasing. We are still doing a theatrical screening, but, you know, because we're offering online and 
obviously the worldwide economic depression, but a positive thing of that is obviously being able to have more films come in. And I'm just really excited about the level of creativity and, you know, just seeing more more films from more places. And mm-hmm. I'm just glad that the creativity is not running short and the options aren't running dry. Yeah. I same boat here. Uh, I remember, I think I, we alluded to it in the conversation last year, but that was something that San Francisco Dance Film Festival was worried about where, like, since everything's online, like, are festivals necessarily going to be are people going to necessarily see them as relevant or necessarily want to go through them to promote their work? But yeah, I mean, we're about a week and a half away from submissions. We've already far exceeded the number of submissions, like our highest number of submissions that we've ever had. So, That's so awesome. Yeah. So that means a lot of, a lot of time in front of the computer, but it's also so wonderful <laughs> to see what's, <laughs> what's been coming in too. Well, and some of the films we're going to talk about today actually were discovered on the festival circuit, and particularly our first film, all by Sarah Prinz and Danny Rosenberg, has been seen, pun not intended ever, um, but has been seen all over the place, internationally at festivals, um, shared in dance magazines. Claire, Hannah, what were your impressions of this film? I actually first saw this film back when I was hosting Screen Dance Collective. And I can't remember exactly how I found it. I think it f- just showed up in my Vimeo feed. During that like whole process of Screen Dance Collective, I would be like, you know, a little excavator on the internet, just searching for hours for something. And you were so good at sh- it too. <laughs> Time paid off here with all, I have to say. But I don't know. I You don't see a lot of older movers and I really enjoy watching other ages than people who are either in their teens or you know around our age like early 30s you don't see those other bodies and I I would say that for kids too you don't see a lot of dance films with kids involved with with them so seeing bodies that are just not, I would say, I would say just different from mine in general. Um, not saying that I'm like flexible, like I'm used to, <laughs> and I can do a backflip or whatever, but just like, you don't see like smaller movement, more meditative. What I liked about all in general was mostly like how ev- individual everyone was, including what spaces that they're in. I mean, the whole film is kind of like about their memories and what they depict as home and obviously they're dancing in their homes and I I don't know I just felt this work really just shows the specialness of who we are as just people you know what what is given to us and what we can do and still do as we grow older totally and I think something that has been a trend and, you know, I don't want to say trend to cheapen what it is, but perhaps a movement or a shift over the past few years is calling more attention to awareness with dance, with dance on screen, uh, pre-COVID with dance on stage and seeing more kinds of bodies. And something I appreciate about all is that perhaps this is as a result of seeing different kinds of bodies is you're looking at dance in a new way. And this film in particular is 
all the people featured in this film are either elderly folks with Parkinson's disease or they're caretakers, professional dancers and students. They're all mixed in there. And I think that it really helps to see um, a mix of people instead of just, you know, a soloist and kind of like the films we talked about last year, making the film about age, whereas this film is really about dance as therapy. And I love that about this film. Yeah, I really love that too. And I really love how it doesn't singularize either the condition of Parkinson's or that people in, in that generation. I really do appreciate how we do see individuals moving as individuals and moving with agency as individuals. And I mean, you can tell that maybe there's some movement techniques or like some movement generation techniques used. Like, I mean, there's some very clear uses of like Forsyth's writing the room and the like, but the movement is really, you know, it fits their bodies and it is from their bodies. And it's not something that is created as sort of a message film where an idea is transposed on their bodies or something is projected on them based on um, someone's unlived experience. So that was really refreshing to see. And um, and yeah, and just seeing the relationship of uh, people with the places they live as well. And it made me think about, you know, when you get to a point when maybe you can't really be quite as mobile or maybe you can't do the work that you used to do and your home is now what you basically see every day. It just, it brought back lots of memories from this past year where that was the only place. And just realizing that this is a reality for a lot of people in non-pandemic times too. And I think that's really important context. I'm really glad you brought that up because I remember the first time I saw this film, we weren't seeing a lot of films People with people indoors at home or in facilities like this. It, it was very striking because of the setting. And I know that before people could really um, see what it's about, your first impression might be, oh, why am I looking inside somebody's house? But it works so well for this kind of mix of, this is like an art film slash documentary in a sense, even though there's you know, it's not like a full feature film. I do feel like we're getting this sort of kinesthetic empathy and this view into these people's lives and the role that dance plays in it. And what a gift that we can use the tools of cinema to actually witness this in, in such a way and weave together this story. And speaking to the body in relation to the camera and the edit, I have to say I really enjoyed watching the rhythm of kind of just being in the moment which we don't really get often with films like these I mean I, I as someone who as we said the other episode I like to julienne my edits and <laughs> all of that and I really enjoyed how you're just kind of really honing in and uh, as well as like the space around them you're not really tight on them at all we're not focusing on one part of their body we're just focusing them as a whole and that's the all of this thing and you know it just kind of like glides into it into one another with the story I mean and it does that through the audio as well I appreciate that a lot yeah I love that description Hannah I really love that sense of being like being in the moment but not like over like overindulging in the moment like it feels like the camera knows how to be present but it's not sort of just taking a really passive look at this 
either too. Yeah, very intentional and not overbearing or in your face or anything. Like this feels right, you know. It's almost like the wisdom and the restraint that comes with age itself. Not that I know that much about it, but relatively speaking and based on, you know, what I've observed about what happens as people get older is perhaps, you know, given the subject matter of this film, it it invites a level of patience and film can already feel very voyeuristic. And I think this film does it in a way that's not, it's not creepy. You're very much, I feel like you're taking part in the routine and it does seem to like slow down time almost and, and make you focus on those little details and um, experience things at a rate where you can just absorb more information because you're more present. Just really movement as ritual was a big um, piece of this that I got. But I love the description of the film in that oftentimes dance therapy is usually confined to clinical settings and rather in the theater or on screen. Now, granted, clinical settings are very much, you know, a lot of it's dependent on privacy and um, maybe someone might not want to share their journey in that. But I really think that there's such a value in seeing like what it's like to be present in that and being present in that process of, of changing movement, not necessarily like taking it with an ableist bend and trying to make the movement quote normal, but the movement really as, as is and as it manifests in these unique bodies. Well, something fun about today's episode that we're going to do is not just talk about films that feature older bodies, but we also are going to speak with a filmmaker who started making dance film later in her career. So Claire had the opportunity to interview Ingrid Knoxtern, and we're going to hear that today about her film Shoehorn Office, as well as her career journey into dance and dance film. So enjoy that. Yeah, it was wonderful having the opportunity to talk to Ingrid and I feel that her trajectory as an artist is a, such a, an inspiration and such a great example of how to sustain yourself in a field that seems to favor younger bodies and younger minds. So let's take a listen. I remember when I first heard about your background and the way that you first got into dance and uh, by proxy, by the way, you first got into dance film, I thought it was so, so illuminating and so inspiring because it's not the typical trajectory that we'd see with a, with a dance artist. And so can you actually um, give a little background as to how you first started dancing and how you eventually found your way to dance film? Okay. It's, it's a kind of long, well, it's not a long story. It's a, uh... I think I, I did everything backwards in the sense that um, I, I went to ballet from about the age of three to 17 and hated every minute of it until um, about the last year. And when I was 10, I asked my mother, as, as I said to you, I think before, back in the day, like this was the 60s or whatever, I said, I want to give it up. And she said, oh, well, you're not dear. So that was it. I hated every minute. Or I really didn't like it. Um, I went to university and um, I just was happy to drop it and whatever. And then, so yeah, so I was working as a translator, for, forgot all about dance. Well, sorry, worked as a translator after university. 
uh, and then went to Canada and worked a bit unofficially there, not un unofficially, but I worked in a non-payment kind of position because I didn't have a work permit. Um, and then I thought after my two children were born, I thought I'll, I'll go back to translation. And in fact, what happened, um, I discovered sort of an evening class in ballet in Dublin. So I, I went to that for a few years and then decided, having not had a performing career or anything, uh, that I'd like to teach ballet. So, I mean, I don't know whether they, I probably shouldn't say this, but whether they should let people in who haven't had a performing career. All I can say in my defense was that I was passionate about it. And I think I did have something to offer. Anyway, long story short, I did my Royal Academy of Dance teaching certificate at the age of 38 and then opened a ballet school for which I had for 19 years. So, how I got into dance films. So, yes, yeah, so then. Like I never performed. I'd ran the ballet school and I never performed in public. I was a translator who then just happened to be a ballet teacher. And then I was in contact with Laurie U. Pritchard, who she's now in New Orleans, I think, and she's done lots of stuff in New York, in Judson Church and St. Mark's Church and all of that kind of thing. I meet Laurie. Laurie says go to movement research. So they had a system where you could apply for a non-curated performance. There was four pe four pieces on, and I was the second person on. And um, afterwards, we were given the audience was given fifteen minutes per artist, mm -hmm. so they could ask you questions and you could talk to people or whatever. And so my piece was about marriage, motherhood, and the piece was called "Who Am I?" And I remember one girl or woman in her mid twenties said to me oh you know of course I have a mom and I know what you're talking about and whatever and I thought yes so having had kind of no validation or whatever this for me was like you know amazing uh, and I remember my husband saying to me before I, I went to New York oh like you know could go wrong and I thought well yeah it could but I'm going to give it a go and a dance critic here who I knew said to me Oh, you're going to do your piece here before you go to New York? I said, you must be joking. I'd yeah. far prefer yeah. to fail in New York than here. Because I thought here, everybody knows me as the ballet teacher, you know, who is maybe too old for what she's doing anyway, without even getting into, you know, what she's doing performing. I mean, this is before, mm -hmm. you know, all these voices, and you know, where they would be in my head. But I thought, well, look, I've only got one life and I'm doing this. Now, I don't care. I don't give a monkey's care. <laughs> At this point, I do not care. I do not care. So people don't like what I do or what I do. I don't care. It's my life. It's taken me a long time to get to this point, like a very long time. But I've almost got there. Right. So if, if this podcast can inspire anybody, you know, no matter what age, because actually some some people in their 40s came up to me a couple of times over the last few years and and took me aside and said oh um you know you're my role model you know because they had maybe young children they, they didn't have to have young children but some of them had young children and i remember in perth i met somebody who had very young children who was torturing herself about you know getting back into things and i said look you know take it easy you know you have years to whatever wait till your children are a bit older before you you know, you stop torturing yourself. Around those years, it was very, I like, I, I had my dance company from 2003. So from 2003 up to about 2013, it was, 
you know, every year or every two years, I would have a piece and it would sort of go on somewhere, but kind of with a lot of difficulty. And then in 2013, I had my triple bill, which was my solo from New York and to a table manner stopping at red lights, which was a dance work before it was a film. So it's a dance work then and freedom to go, which is a dance work as well. So we put that on in project in Dublin. And then I'm having drinks with my stage manager in Christmas 2013. We were drinking for about four hours. I shouldn't say that, but it was Christmas. Hey, we were drinking for two hours. <laughs> it's Christmas. And uh, just as we were getting up, she said to me, do you know what? They should be turned into films. So after Christmas, there was Christmas and then New Year. And I remembered her, her phrase. So I thought, oh, okay. So I rang a filmmaker that I know here, not very well. Now, as it turns out, she's a documentary filmmaker. So I didn't know anything about, you know, different things. And I, and I thought in theory, oh, I can work with her. So I rang her and before I was about to say, well, we could work together, whatever. She then mentioned Luca Truffarelli, who, who's the great guy, the cinematographer. So I meet him in January. And he says uh, he could only meet me in March. That, no, I, I rang him in January. I met him in March. And I said, what about turning these in? And he said, yes, and we could do it on the 12th of June, which is the only day free that I have. So I said, oh, okay. Um, and Michael, Cooney, my dancer, who's now a very good friend, said to me, you know, maybe this won't work. And I said, well, yeah, well, I, it'll either work or it won't work. I thought, we'll give it a go. So I had no clue. Like I had absolutely, we had one day to film Table Manners, Stopping at Red Lights. And it was torrential rain for about eight hours of the 10 hours. Um, There's lovely shots in the evening when the rain stopped and the sun was there and all the rest of it. And Luca said to me, I could look through you know, the lens to see what he was doing. Because, you know, I, my, my problem was, oh, this is my life dance work and I want to keep every single thing of that into the, which, which of course you can't, like you can't. So after about 10 minutes of looking through the lens, I thought, oh, look, he knows what he's doing. So like he does all, well, he doesn't just do all the technical thing. Like we bounce stuff off each other. And he's actually the only person that, like if you'd said to me years ago, would you like to work with another choreographer? And I said, you must be mad. Like you <laughs> must be mad. like we kill each other. I would kill them and they would kill me. But because I don't know anything about films, I don't know. I, I, I don't do the camera work. I haven't a clue, but I know what looks good. And he and I have he it, it's just great because we can sort of bounce ideas off each other and we get into a nice space where we have more ideas or more, more input on it or whatever, rather than if I was just sitting thinking on, on my own. So we do, um, yeah, so that it, it came from that. So we turned the first film, the 30 minutes table manner stopping at the red lights into a seven and three quarter minute screen dance film. And then the second film, which was filmed in Matera, we turned a 30 minute dance work into an eight and three quarter minute film experimental film and the last film shoehorn office wasn't a live dance work first and it just came to me in my head in shots you know in scenes and maybe for that reason 
I'm not saying that the others didn't work. I mean, I think they did work, but I think I was approaching it from from a different way. I wasn't, you know, I've, I've I've got into trouble before by talking about. I mean, I have done live dance works, but you know, meandering dance works where you know you can look up stage and downstage and here and there and all the rest of it. Whereas in the film, you know, this is my hand, and you can't look at anything else except my hand. You can't. Do, do you know what I mean? You you've got to be more specific and whatever. You know, everybody's saying, well, it's screen dance, which, yes, it is. But when I was first applying through Film Freeway, you know, with the first film and whatever, I was doing all that for six months before I realized that I didn't know what type of film it was. It was in under the short film category. And obviously it, it wasn't narrative and it wasn't documentary and it wasn't animation. And then one day, six months in, I see an experimental category and I'm thinking, oh, I wonder what that is. So I, I, I kind of bunged it in under experimental, not really understanding what the category meant. But that's exactly what it is, because it's non-linear, like it's non-narrative. You know, it doesn't go ABC, it goes B to X to P to Z to whatever. Yet not throwing the kitchen sink at the whole thing. So now I, I say it's the films are experimental slash screen dance. And actually, when we don't get into screen dance festivals i'm not that i'm not disappointed but i'm not that disappointed and maybe not that surprised because there's there's little bits of dance you know because there's text because there's rhyming text and dance it's not like a pure dance film where people are i'm not denigrating but they're dancing all the way through so i have lots of other bits in it so if 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 um you know, the programmers are seeing it and thinking, well, do you know what I mean? Yes. So there's when when I run out, when I can't say it with dance, I I, I bring in text. And mm -hmm. in the beginning, like a, a thought went through my head as, oh, are you meant to do this? And I'm thinking, well, to myself, I'm thinking, well, I'm doing this and that's what I'm doing. Um, I wanted to actually focus on shoehorn office and um Focus on, first of all, the um, the inspiration for creating that. So I believe I read in an interview that it was uh, somewhat inspired by the um, the Brock Turner case, and it's a very confrontational take on sexual harassment and both the bindings, both literally and figuratively, of women's fashion. Um, so what um, I'm interested in how. Um, how did you develop this uh, for the screen? I know that a lot of the images came to your head, but how did what how what was the process of developing those images and the movement ideas with your cast? Well, things like um, the images of there's Millie, me, and the mannequin in the tree, um, and because we have Victorian dresses, I, I had the idea of putting us in Victorian type dresses with corsets on the outside. So, you know, constriction, constriction. Um, so again, because we're talking, it's it was easy enough to do it because we're saying something you know, like we are three stuck in a tree. Where's the liberty? You know, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, because we're not moving very much. And the mannequin is there and she's not. I mean. We're saying we are three, but there's only two of us who are talking and two of us who are moving. So she's like the, not quite sure what she is, but anyway, she she fits in quite well. And then with the guys, 
uh, years back when we were living in Oxford, I, I had to take a job to pay our mortgage here. And I was working in a car factory and it was one of these awful male chauvinist thing with, you know, Pirelli calendars and just awful atmosphere. Um, and I think the two guys like Don and Michael in the film, when they have Millie on a chair, I was just like pulling ideas from sort of what's happened then and in other jobs where I had where, where I was. I was a sort of audition to be a waitress in, I suppose, a nightclub. I suppose I, I was very naive and didn't expect, you know, to have to wear a dress up around my ass and whatever. In the end, I walked out and I said, I don't want the job. <laughs> but um, but yeah, so we we worked on a, on a couple of things like that to show basically just what made chauvinist pigs they were. And I was trying to, um, you know, show that in relation to the kind of secretary that they were really lording it over there's the bit where it's juxtaposed where they're don and michael are they they've got their beer scene with the cans and they're drunk and they're saying i oh, walk this way mate walk this way mate and actually the guy in bister when we went out once for um a lunch he said that i i remember and he was like he was just being himself like a normal guy in in the 1980s uh which unfortunately is you know you know, that lad culture. And of course, I, I don't know if you heard about the Sarah Everard murder. Oh God, yeah. 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 Oh, that that really, that really touched, touched a nerve. And it's because of that, you know, that, that sexist banter in inverted commas is not banter. You know, the, the standard, I mean, men may be a bit more afraid to say it now, but, you know, even up to a few years ago, the standard thing is, oh, you can't take a joke you know, lighten up, or the next thing is kind of frigid bitch, you know, all of that. I mean, that hasn't been said to me, but, you know, that sort of atmosphere. And I think it's it's just a small jump from that kind of thing to upskirting to whatever, to then, you know, literally men forcing themselves on on on, on top of women. I mean, I, I, I showed the film to a friend of mine in London last year, the year before, and when it finished, she didn't say anything. And I, I said to her, are you okay? When she saw the film, she said to me, oh, I feel kind of empowered or something. And I think it's it's nice, like even if I got no other reaction from the film except that. But nowadays, like my daughters who are 34 and 31, they know when that kind of thing is happening. And, you know, you can call it out immediately. But back in the day, do you know what I mean? People people didn't have the words. They didn't know what was happening. It was, I, I would have blamed myself in the sense of I'm, I'm not assertive enough. Like I always think with regards to speaking up, um, especially like with regards to speaking up with young dancers, that's also so tough because there are so many internalized hierarchies where you almost get shamed into saying, well, I can't, I, I can't speak up or else that's going to be a mark on my career. That's going to be preventing whatever other opportunities I'm going to get. But yes. And you, you're maybe going to get the reputation of being difficult or something like that. I mean, I think in the ballet world, particularly because I, I have no training in anything else, which I shouldn't be saying, but I'm saying it. Hey. <laughs> um, <laughs> that 
you know, especially in my, well, not so much now because the teacher I go to, it's all, I mean, obviously there's a discipline and whatever, but there's no humiliating treatment. But I have heard of people like somebody that I, well, I, sh I shouldn't say, I, I should keep it all very anonymous that, you know, people go into ballet companies and maybe a male director. And I, I haven't witnessed any of that because I, you know, I wasn't in a ballet company and all the rest of it. But uh, yes, I think that ingrained training of you keep your mouth shut and and that's fine if if you're in a good atmosphere and if if it's in a healthy atmosphere but but if it's not uh and again you know to just take a dancer where you know your your professional lifespan is so short that if you were to say something about somebody or whatever you you know it could go around then that oh well so so's difficult don't touch her which yeah. is what they did in Hollywood, you know, with the Harvey Weinstein thing, like he had the power to literally break people's careers. Mm -hmm. um, so that's great that that all came to light. And it's, I suppose, like it's it's a long, hard battle. I mean, somebody on Facebook, or not Facebook, on Instagram said to me the other day, oh, you know, how can we, you know, can how can we deal with this? How, how can we change this? And I said, I don't know, but we've got to try. You know, the alternative is just, is just to think, oh, well, that's the status quo and there's nothing you can do. I mean, there's there's lots you can do, but I mean, it, it it's a fight. But, but anyway, I, I think it's just a case of educating boys and girls really from about the age of three. So I don't know, I, I, I suppose in order not to fall into despair, I think education is probably the best, best way around it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually wanted to ask, um, and I don't want to project or presume anything, but I feel a lot of the dynamic with dancers usually involves much, usually much older figureheads with much younger um, performers. But I'm actually curious that starting a dance career so later than one usually would give you a, sen a heightened sense of agency with the way that you took your career. I, I think from going to my my ballet classes in London, say the last five years, I think that has given me confidence. Because I think if if I just say had been a ballet dancer, I mean, I wouldn't have been because I wouldn't have been good enough. But had I been a ballet dancer, I, you know, the, the, the best would have been behind me. So now my attitude is I'm not bad. I'm much better than somebody who's come in off the street and I have an artistic thing that I can, you know, I can certainly give it a, a good go. From the point of view about as an older person, say doing my films, particularly in the beginning, I, I never thought, oh, well, you know, I'm whatever age, whatever it was, 60 or something. It's because it's my film. Did you know what I mean? If you get the difference yes, and it's my vision. I mean, I will... I will kind of listen to ideas um, and take them if if they're part of my vision. If they're not, I won't. And Michael, who's my dancer, but he's also now a very good friend, he, he suggested something once. I, he suggested things loads of times. On one particular occasion, he he suggested something. And I was I was saying, oh, uh, he said, just say no. I said, so no. I suppose at, at my age, I'm thinking I should have more confidence than I have. But compared to where I was even 10 years ago, because I keep thinking, come on, you're going to die. So it doesn't really matter. So don't be nervous. So that really works. You know, that really works. <laughs> it, it, it does. No, it does. Right. It does. 
it's oh. I suppose you learn things I I pick I, I don't know what I've learned from the last film, but I will have learned something by the time I, I get to the fourth one. Um, and as I say, I know, I know nothing about the, you know, the camera end of it. And at one point I thought, oh, am I a fraud because I should go? And I thought, no, I don't have time. I'm going to die soon. I don't have time to do this. Luca does it really well, so I don't need to do it. You know, I, I can direct it and I can see what I like and I know what I like. Uh, so it's not like I can't do everything. Um, right. And he's brilliant anyway. So you know, why would I try and do his job? Exactly. Uh, I mean, that's, that's collaboration. That's <laughs> Yeah, e exactly. I, I feel it's like an artistic marriage made in heaven because we, you know, we've had very, very trying times. Um, and everybody has just pulled together and pushed on nobody has complained or whatever is there anything else that you would like to to share for our listeners so the only thing i i maybe like to say is that you know you've only got one life so if people really want to do stuff or take a gamble or a risk you know within limits or whatever i would say just just go for it do you, do you know what I mean? Or if somebody's maybe listening and is in a job they don't like. I mean, I know people have to eat and all the rest of them pay the rent, but just to really, if if you're passionate about something, and even if other people think it's a mad idea, it doesn't really matter. If you think it's really it's what you want to do, that then then go do it. Well, Claire, thank you for taking some time with Ingrid. That was a really great discussion of just what she has created and her time as an artist through dance film I mean and she's still making works to this day with shoehorn office it definitely I would say I mean we're in the 21st century we're been through a lot of um, movements or campaigns of like healthy work environments um, as well as just like being a female artist, being a female entrepreneur, entrepreneurs, all of us, um, you know, like we definitely have taken a lot of power over the time. And I feel like this little, this film kind of captures almost the past of what we've overcome um, as a female collective does show how much we've overcome as a collective, but it also to me shows a lot of how those inequities remain and even how those inequities remain in terms of fashion. Taking the example of the ballet studio, for instance, and this was a discussion that I actually saw happen recently, where it, especially when you're in rehearsal environments or even when you're a student growing up, women are expected to be very uniform. Mm -hmm. And their appearance in um, in productions tends to be very uniform as well. And even in the context of rehearsals, like many sometimes directors require women to wear skirts, which is a very, very much a you know gendered notion of what a female body is supposed to look like. Whereas men, they can wear sweats, they can dance shirtless, <laughs> they can wear t-shirts. If a female dancer, I mean. I'm, mostly talking about ballet here, but that, you know, this does bleed into other forms as well. If a woman wanted to wear sweats and t-shirts in a ballet rehearsal, like they wouldn't be allowed to do that. It would be quote unquote unprofessional. 
Exactly. So it just shows, like, to me, it just heightened those double standards in that, you know, we see the men who are very much, like, in their in their slacks and very much, like, staggering down the street versus, you know, the woman who's very much, you know, confined in a pencil skirt and trying to navigate on grass and high heels, which anyone who's done that knows that's not easy. <laughs> I think dance and film are both really good media to address this sort of issue as well because both have their issues of objectification, of sexualization, of, you know, allowing predators to exist within the field. Um, there's a lot of issues with it. And even with people, and I would say particularly with dance, people outside of dance, sexualizing dance and dancers. And, you know, even though it's so great that we've made a lot of progress in certain areas on this topic, it's really good to be able to kind of have a time capsule and look back. Even looking at a film like Metropolis from 100 years ago and how it looks at, you know, factory workers and and family conflict and dealing with machines, it's timeless. And that's a really great thing that I think dance and movement in particular allows us to connect with on a more visceral level when we're watching it. And I really loved in the interview how Ingrid was mentioning the the difference between what her daughter's are confronting versus what she was discouraged from confronting because that does show uh, as you know, as Hannah said like that does show that there is a sense of a change and a heightened sense of agency for women to not let what quite frankly was unacceptable behavior pass because it's you know been allowed to pass for generations got to be the one that people are afraid of and something else i loved hearing from uh, Ingrid's interview as well is just I feel with a lot of younger dancers, and again, I think this is very much symptomatic of generations of training and quite frankly, generations of trauma from training, is that so many dancers self-gatekeep as far as being able to put work on, like saying like, oh no, I'm not good enough to do that, or I'm not good enough to do this project. But I really, I mean, I think that she has such a interesting perspective as far as like, okay, maybe I don't know the technical side, maybe I'll be considered a fraud, but I mean... Quite frankly, I don't have a lot of time left, so I'm just going to make something. So I really think that's a great attitude to have in this kind of situation. Well, and you could almost picture like a graph where you have time on one axis and then experience on which you can draw from on the other. And the more time you have, in a way, you know, it's, it's a sad reality. As you, as you get older as a dancer, you get more knowledge. You know, as an adult, you can sometimes be a better student you know, mentally, um, or even just with that desire or understanding of what effort really is mentally and physically. And I find that as much as we lament that as we get older, our bodies uh, maybe are not, well, not maybe, definitely are not as easy to dance with, our minds and our, our time on earth allows us to have so many more experiences, develop so many more ideas, and how amazing that film can allow us to capture parts of life and actually, you know, help make sense of it and sustain a career. Mm-hmm. The dance field, and, and I think dance film does allow for this much better than the dance field in general does, but I think that there need to be plans and action for how do you sustain a dance career past the age of 30? Yeah. I mean, so much of the infrastructure of um, of the dance field, and I mean, not necessarily the dance film field, but but some of it ties out. 
so much of it is reliant on the dancer's career ending and this idea that the institution does not have to sustain that person beyond a certain time. But honestly, we need to. We need to find a way to make that a sustainable career because artistically, like, I mean, I feel that I'm still growing. Like if I, like to say someone peaked artistically at 25, that is, that's really stymieing. It's like peaking in high school. It's not a good thing. You do not want to peak early. And what a depressing life no. ahead of you if you spend yeah. the first estimated quarter, like if you take your life expectancy and you think, okay, a quarter into my life, it's over. I mean, what do you have to look forward to every day? And that's missing on so many decades of potential, of potential growth, of potential insight. And I do love, I mean, Ingrid had so many great quotes in this. I think she she's a absolutely delightful person to talk to. And um, if you ever meet her on the festival circuit, please do um, go up to her and say a few words. But I really appreciated the quote she had about being in class and saying, like, you know, knowing that I'm not taking class knowing my best years are behind me. I'm, no, I'm taking this class growing and I'm not going to be quite so reticent to take on new projects because you know, I'm going to die soon. <laughs> Speaking of death, our third film today, Wake, by directing duo Katie Beard and Naomi Turner, is another film we saw on the festival circuit last year. I know that I took me all of 10 seconds to know I loved it and wanted to screen it at my festivals. So for our listeners, as always, you can catch this and other films in the show notes. But just so that you have some context, like what this film's about, it's a short dance film which explores and responds to modern attitudes around loss and grief, taking inspiration from different rituals and funeral traditions from around the world. It's filmed in the stark and shifting terrain of Dartmoor, which is in England. And it is just visually so stunning and, and harsh, but beautiful, inspiring. So what did you two think about this film? I think this work is just beautiful in general. Uh, I really enjoy the music, the way it's shot and edited. Uh, I felt there was just some kind of celebration and welcoming, and I just felt warmth at the very end of it. It was just nothing but happiness for me as a as a film, as a trajectory of mood. I wish I saw this sooner, honestly. <laughs> well, first of all, England, like get out of London and oh my gosh, that is a stunning country <laughs> built on. I mean, so much history for all to see, but built on um, so many bones of the fallen as well. But I love this film as far as showing passing as a ritual in a way. Um, in the beginning, we see a woman at in a church setting, which is common as far as processes of mourning go. You go to a communal center, or at least prior to COVID, you went to a communal center and everyone's very, you know, stern, looking down and very much, you know, acknowledging this and then moving on. But I love the juxtaposition of that between that and the end where we see this sort of ex exaltation where we see someone literally being held by their community as um, a loved one is literally passing in the breeze. So it really does show this show this notion of death as a progression and not necessarily like a trajectory towards an ending point. 
you know, when I was watching this, I was thinking of like, yeah, there's there's death involved. And then all these other people involved. I was just thinking about how, I don't know, there's this new chapter involved in it. The releasing of the ashes. You're on this mountainside. There's people with you. It's just kind of like you're moving forward from the moment. Like you're closing one page and opening the other, which, you know, leads to this circle of life moment honestly i was thinking the lion king which is really strange but i mean like that is the first thing that i've you know you think of like seeing a, a movie like that at that kind of age like it's kind of strange how it really is that in general and something about this film i think that is just so satisfying and like makes it really immerses you when you're watching is that the collaboration's really clear it has a clear feel it has a clear look I love the color palette. It's not like a sad film about death. It's not just depressing. I feel like you're actually sort of going on the healing journey. There's, you know, sometimes people make a film about grief and they just show one moment or one scene or one facet of the emotion. They don't show um, a full progression. And that's really satisfying about this film. I also really like when when a team can come together with just kind of sectioning off the story in a way without needing to do, you know, excessive narration or title cards or dialogue. Like when you can successfully use your locations, use your music, use your phrasing, use your choreography to really take the audience along without too much of that other stuff because it's like, oh, they won't get it otherwise. And I think that's what makes this so effective. I just really love this film and can't recommend it enough. And shout out to Liv Lockwood. I think her her choreography was spot on for this. Like I I definitely got a visceral reaction watching it and was like moved to dance and may have cried. May have cried, but I'm an easy crier. Well, all of these films that we've discussed today, you know, focusing on age or older bodies with all these films incorporating someone that is a little older, a little wiser on screen, like how would, in this case, Wake, we only have one person that is, you know, older on screen than the rest. How would it be different if the character was a younger individual? I think that the relationship between the, between that mover and the person who presumably deceased would be a bit different. Exactly. Yeah, it could have been maybe this person is a father, maybe this person is someone who is older. But in this case, and I don't want to presume anything, like the dancer is parting with someone who they've known for a very long time, who it's very clear it's a peer of them. Mm -hmm. And again, this dancer, the featured dancer, is an argument for continuing to develop your artistry over the decades because the weight which she brings each movement and how each gesture is is really held and how each gesture is really communicated is with a sense of I mean with not necessarily with a sense of experience but with a sense of um communicative ease like it's not putting on a feeling of sadness it really is communicating that in an organic fashion 
especially Sarah Farrow Jones, the lead. You know, just I love how the acting is really there as well in this film. Sometimes we have great dancing, but not great acting. And I think that she has such a lovely subtlety and natural feel to her performance that more often than not, when you see films about death, they can sometimes be kind of cringy and melodramatic. And I personally can enjoy something melodramatic. That's not that I I can't get into that, but I think this film's that all the more powerful and I feel more inclined to share it with a wider audience because it's it's not your stereotypical film about death. Now, in this case with Shoehorn Office, uh Ingrid was actually a part of the work. She is inserted herself and it's and she's not a main character, she's just a part of it. How did that to you bring that, I mean, I guess like wisdom or, you know, an older quality, an older person, someone who's qualified to the story, to the narrative? Well, to me, and I'm specifically referring, there are two scenes that I'm referring to. Like one scene would be the bank teller, like the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac sing song rhyme. And just thinking that I used to work in a law office, I um, used to like, go to tax offices all the time. There are, you know, women who've worked there for years and have endured, I mean, very casual sexist comments for years. So to me, it's very much indicative of something that's kind of been a stalwart over a certain period of time and something I don't necessarily want to say like sort of these cycles that are going to continue, but it shows that, you know, there are people who have endured these and may continue to endure them as well. I think it brings more honesty to the work as well, because to to speak to your question about if this was a younger mover, as someone that works so much with children and, you know, even with youth protection advocates and dance, like working in the industry to, you know, educate and try and encourage some standards, you know, so often when we see young people dancing, there's a fine line between exploitation and highlighting what is just a natural thing people might be interested in and I feel like so often young dancers like their energy their flexibility their cuteness like all these things become front and center ahead of what are they saying what are they what is the purpose of the dance and I think as you go on in your career there are so many ways that life can get you down or there can be so many things that can pull you away from your dance away from your practice away from your your artistry that you kind of have to to stay engaged. You have to keep returning to the question of why am I doing this? And I think that when you see an older person that's made that decision and been through those conversations with themselves or with other people, that just comes through their dancing because there's that level of commitment and and the story that they bring with them in their movement. And I think that you can't deny that when you see these films, how... It, it's a great gift to be able to witness an older person dancing. And we should encourage seeing more more diversity in the ages and the abilities and the sizes and the colors and the shapes of different dancers that we're seeing. And, you know, this these three films is just a starting point. And also, um, and this is something that I see in submissions all the time. It's something we alluded to last season. Um, can we stop it with the films that feature an older dancer fetishizing their younger self? Yeah. Can we just yes. stop it with that? We need to make like a poster of like 
dance film genres. And that is like a subgenre of like if there were a blockbuster for screen dance down the aisle of like we're looking at older dancers. That would be like a the main feature is like fetishizing my younger self. Yeah. Yeah. That was the one thing when I when we were when I was constructing this episode, I, I was thinking of that episode on nudity and how much there was this comparison of old and young. And one of my questions, um, listeners, we always create some questions to just kind of guide ourselves through these conversations. And one thing I wrote was, how can we steer steer away from focusing on age in these dance film works? You know, these three films that we have talked about, I mean, with all we're celebrating how we have grown into who we are today, no matter what age or part of your life you're in but in these other two films too it's like you know I think the level of commitment and wisdom and growth is a theme of what we've celebrated today and you know what we're not looking back (laughs) (laughs) true that well if you have any films featuring older dancers particularly not fetishizing them young, their younger selves um feel free to send them to us. We would love to continue to feature more episodes where we are looking at broadening our horizons on the kind of bodies we're seeing on screen and the kind of stories that those bodies are telling as well. Thank you so much for everyone participating in today as well as our listeners and uh, we'll see you next week. We're excited to share that the Short Waves Festival is happening online and in person in Poznania, Poland. This is June 14th to June 20th so make sure you check out the link in the show notes for more information. We said it once and we'll say it again. If you want to share your event on the show, click the link in the show notes to find out how. We're taking submissions for announcements until June 30th, so don't wait. We'd love to hear from you. Send us an email at frameformpodcast at gmail.com and engage with us on social at frameformpod. That's frameform, P-O-D. If you like what you're hearing, leave a review and rate the show. It really helps out. And if you know someone who also likes dance or film, join the conversation and bring your friends. Frameform is a production of Rixie, hosted by Hannah Weber, Jen Ray, and Claire Schweitzer. Edited by the Frameform team. Mix and theme song by myself, Mason Carlton. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.